You're listening to Accelerate Churches Podcast, located in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thank you for joining us. We pray you leave inspired, and this message helps you build your faith. We hope you enjoy this word from our lead pastor, Ernest Grant II. I don't know if I have any readers in the building, anybody that love to read books in the building. All right, awesome podcasters in the building. All right, awesome. Praise God for that. Well, there's a really, really good book on the market right now. Uh, it's called The Myth of Happiness. The Myth of Happiness. Um, and it's written by a psychiatrist who's, who she is actually one of the leading experts in this idea of well-being. And she says that the reason that things like promotions and higher salaries and romances don't bring us joy or lasting satisfa- satisfaction is because of something called hedonic adaptation. Hedonic adaptation. I worked a thousand times to make sure I said that right. And so that means that you think certain things are going to make you happy, but once you receive them, then you quickly adapt to them. And so what that suggests is that um, when you're on a vacation, you were so excited to get there, or you were ready to jump into that budding relationship, or maybe you were like, man, I'm going to get this house, and it's finally going to bring me joy and satisfaction. Um, It doesn't because eventually you get used to it. It becomes routine. And I would say that the same thing that applies to our, our pursuits are the same things that apply to our relationships and specifically our marriages. As you know, we've been in a series, Love, Sex, and Dating, and we've been walking through the gambit of relationships. And a lot of times uh, in relationships, initially there's this gladness. There's this excitement. Y'all remember when you get the butterflies in your stomach? You see their number pop up on a caller ID, it just gives you goosebumps. Now, instead of uh, getting goosebumps, you just get upset. You're like, what are they calling me again for? I don't do that, babe. I don't do that. I'm just, that's just illustration. I love when you call. I love when you call. But over time, like, there's this, this budding allure and excitement in a relationship. But over the time, the heat of the relationship and the marriage dissipates because it falls under the lid of life. So there was once this inferno, there was once this budding excitement, and your, your relationship was roaring, and now it's become rudimentary. Now it's become regular. And some people, if they're honest in here, or some of the married folks that have been married for a while, they would say, yes, pastor, my love has chilled. Uh, I, if, if you're super honest, you would say, in some ways, that now things are monotonous. Uh, they're kind of dull. Uh, it's like food without any seasoning. It's kind of bland. When you first got married, there was this fire and passion and desire, but over time, your body changes. Over time, hormones change. And then when you introduce kids into the dynamic, it just changes everything in general. The parents said, amen. And they would say that the spark that we initially had is gone. So therefore, even though we're married, we act like roommates. And even though there's proximity, there's no intimacy. So some of us feel like today, well, follow, well, Pastor, what do I do for my love? I just want to let you know that you might just need to learn how to throw some logs in the fire. Throw some logs in the fire. Let me give you the big idea, idea today. It's your marriage doesn't have to expire. It's just time to throw some logs in the fire. Because you can have a lifelong, joy-filled, enduring love, but it's going to require that you not only work in it, but that you work on it. Does that make sense? See, a lot of us are doing marriage, but we're not working on the marriage. And that's the reason that so many marriages falter, because we get so, cont- we get so into a routine that we forget that it often needs maintenance. Does that make sense? 
Don't worry, my singles, I got something for you. Don't even, don't even sweat. Don't check out on me yet. So as we learned last week, this, this couple just had their honeymoon. It was a great time, right? They're, they're smiling. They're joy-filled. It was amazing. Honeymoon literally means sweet month. And so shortly after that month, things turned bitter. Because shortly after the honeymoon, they had their first fight. The dude was expecting to come home and enjoy a sexual liaison with his wife. And she was like, nah, it's not happening tonight. I've already taken the bath bomb. I haven't shaved my legs. I've got my comfortable jammies on. We not doing anything tonight. And so what the man decided to do was run off on her, storm off on her. And she could have said, she could have simply been upset or been prideful, but she decided that she was going to pursue after him. And that's a small picture of how Jesus pursues after us when we go and pursue sin. It's a reminder of how God doesn't stop chasing after us. He doesn't fold his arms and get upset because we're running away. Instead, he puts himself in harm's way in order to save us. If you remember in that very same passage, it said that she got beaten up by the guards of the day. In other words, in order to save him, she experienced problems or issues. And so what happens is in order for Jesus to save you and I and pursue you and I, he put himself in harm's way so that you and I could have the joy of a relationship with God. Are y'all hearing me today, church? So she pursues after him. And then before she has the opportunity to apologize for her selfish antics, he starts off the conversation in chapter six, verse four. Let's look at it together. He says, you are as beautiful as Terza, my darling and as lovely as Jerusalem. Now remember, um, this, is, this is poetry. And so the word, the word terza means delight. This word Jerusalem can mean refuge. So what, she say, what he's saying to his bride is, is that you are a safe place for my soul. I run to you for safety. And then he says this, he says, and you're an awe-inspiring army with banners. I, I know that that doesn't probably ring a bell or that gets lost on us. But what she's saying is like war now is a bit covert. People don't, they don't, they, they do different things. Um, but, but back then when they would go to war, they would have on these elegant uniforms. And what he's saying is that they were something to see. And what he's communicating to his wife is that, baby, you are beautiful and something to see like these armies that go to war with one another. He's saying, you're beautiful. And so then he goes down from chapter five, I mean, verses five through seven, and he continues to discuss her beauty. And I like what he does because he recycles it. He recycles some compliments. Amen. He's like, you know what? I love your hair and I love your eyes and your teeth, right? You have all that you, the, the orthodontist did a good job with you, right? He's really excited about that. And he gets down to verse eight and nine. I want you to notice what he says. He says, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and young men without number. Remember this, chapter 1, verse 5, she talks about his character. And she talks about how the young women all scream his praise. So what this man is saying is, I've got options out there, or at least I had options now that I'm married. But look what he says in verse 9, but my dove, my virtuous one, is unique. She is the favorite of her mother, the perfect one who gave birth. Women see her and declare her fortunate. Queens and concubines also, they sing her praises. So what he's saying is that in a time where kings would have multiple wives and they also have multiple concubines, I am happy that I chose quality over quantity. He's saying, I'm glad that I chose your companionship over multiple conquests. 
He said, I don't need to sleep with multiple women in order to feel like a man because I need to help with these damaged little boy issues looking for affirmation in women. He's saying, I, I, I don't need to be in an open relationship because everybody's cool with an open relationship until they're not. He's like, I don't need to be in a polyamorous relationship where I welcome other people into this thing to keep it spicy. Meanwhile, our intimacy is deteriorating because I have another option in case you don't sexually, sexually satisfy me. He's like, in a world of casual hookups and pornography, the best thing that I could have done is pursued after you because you're the true one that I want. And let me tell you, the same thing that applies to this relationship between this man and this woman also applies to us in Christ. Because this is a picture of Jesus loving his church. And so what he's saying, what Jesus is in a very spiritual sense, according to Dr. Phil Riken, is Jesus is a one-woman man. He wants you. He loves us. He's like, he's like, I know that your mascara is caked on with sin. I know that your eyelashes aren't always on fleek because of iniquity. I know that your feet always, always aren't done because of sin. But I want you to know that you are still the one I want. You're the, still the one I choose, the one that I love in spite. Somebody ought to just give Jesus some praise for that. Jesus doesn't love you because you're perfect. He loves you because you have value to him. He knows that you're raggedy and he knows what you do behind the scenes. He's endowed purpose and meaning and value in you. And he has pursued us at the cost of himself. One thing that I try to get people to avoid when they're arguing with their spouse is hyperbolic language. You should probably stay away from words like always and never. Right? Because, uh, because not only is it dramatic, not only is it an exaggeration, but it's also untrue. Because none of us always does something or never does anything. Does that make sense? And what it does is it's very hurtful because it puts the other person on the defensive end. Because they feel like they're being hurt. And so they've got to come up with receipts of times they didn't do what you said they did. And that normally applies to our relationships, but that same thing doesn't apply to our relationship with Jesus. Because when it comes to our marriage to him, it's always us and never him. It's always us that runs away. It's always us that goes in a different direction. But I'm thankful today that he does not shift his commitment to us or condemn us. Rather, he says, he doesn't say, I'm done with you. He says, come on home to me because I got a place in my father's house for you. Then in verse 13 or verse 11, she says, I came down to the walnut grove to see the blossoms of the valley. And to see the vines were budding in the pomegranates blooming. So scholars tell us this. This is a metaphor. And so this is a metaphor for her wanting to know whether he is still in love or she is still in love with him. He, whether he's still in love with her. Now remember, her father is not there in the household. And so she could be dealing with a lot of baggage from the problems that she's run into with her family in the past. So she could be worried, like, is he still going to love me at my worst? And then when she gets there, she finds out that her husband is ready to reconnect. He said, look at what she says. She says, I didn't know what was happening to me, verse 12, but I felt like I was in a chariot with a nobleman. 
Now, I know that that might get lost on us, but uh, when two kings wanted to show that they were at peace with each other, what they would do is hop into a chariot and they would ride with each other. And so that would show that they were on the same page. They were at peace with each other. So she went down there presumably to apologize for how she acted. And then she recognized that he had already decided to forgive her before she got there. Does that make sense? And so here's the first log in the fire in order for you to have lasting love. Here it is. Number one, forgiveness. 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 Uh, One of the main reasons that relationships falter and marriage fires cool is because couples often have the inability of forgiving one another. You often don't forgive. And it doesn't matter if you're in a relationship or you're not. We all, to some degree, struggle with this. So whether you're single looking to date or whether you're married uh, for a while, I think this really applies. So before we talk about what forgiveness is, let's talk about what forgiveness is not. I love how Pastor J.D. Greer explains this. Number one, forgiveness is not a feeling. See, some of us are waiting to feel like forgiving someone before we do it. But forgiveness is not a feeling like hate, jealousy, envy, or anger. Forgiveness is a decision that you and I make not to hold a grudge against someone that has wronged us. Does that make sense? Because when you eventually forgive, your feelings will follow behind. Right? A lot of us make too many decisions based upon how we feel, and then we don't feel that same way later. Is that right? We make decisions. So, so what happens is it, God commands us to forgive because Jesus has forgiven us, and then our feelings will flow in alignment with that decision that we've made. That makes sense? Number one, number two, forgiveness is not excusing the offense. See, a lot of us don't want to forgive people because we think that it's just sweeping what they've done under the rug. We think that, hey, if I forgive them, it's going to condone that person's actions. Let me tell you, it's not. That's not the case because it is possible to pursue justice and to still call the police and to have a, and to do all of those things and put the consequences of that person's sin in the hands of God, right? They can't just put their hands on you and then not pray the crime. You can forgive them, but they still need to experience the consequences of this thing. Does that make sense? All right, here's another one. Number three, forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. I run into people all the time that use that same mantra that we need to forgive and forget. And they say, well, we need to forgive and forget because isn't that what Jesus does? Ah, let's think about that. Can we talk about, can we talk about this? Let's talk about this philosophically. If God forgot your sin, it would be the equivalent of him not being omniscient or knowing the past, present, and the future. No, no, no. God knows the past, the present, and the future. And so what God does is he doesn't forget what we've done, but rather, he doesn't, he doesn't forget what we've done, but rather he chooses not to remember. Are y'all hearing me? In other words, because he's so powerful and omniscient and, and immutable and all of these things, he makes the sovereign choice that I'm going to take what you've done and I'm going to separate it as far as the east, east is the west and I'm not going to bring it up, I'm not going to dredge it up, and I'm not going to penalize you for it anymore. That's what it is. Like, like God separates that from us, but he doesn't forget it. Here, here's number four. is forgiveness 
doesn't happen when the person apologizes. Some of us are like, well, I'll forgive them, I promise. But they just got to apologize first. No, they don't. No, they don't. No, they don't. Think about it for a second. In this passage, Solomon is willing, Solomon speaks first. And he forgives her before she even has the opportunity to apologize. Right? He didn't wait for her to apologize to him. Like a lot of us right now are like, well, I'm waiting for them to say sorry. What if they don't? Are you still going to hold on to the unforgiveness? If God wants you to forgive as he has forgiven you, are you going to hold on to that thing until somebody else says that they're sorry? In other words, you're letting that person have control on your ability to forgive when they really shouldn't. Think about it like this. When you ask God the Father to clear us and forgive. Oh, no, that's not, that's not what I want to say. That's not what. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So on the cross, I want you to notice what happened. On the cross, Jesus forgave you before you were born. Get that. Somebody needs to get that. Before you, while he was being murdered on the cross of Calvary, he was forgiving us of our sin. Even the people that were antagonistically crucifying him at the foot of the cross, he was forgiving them before they apologized. And so forgiveness is less about your significant other, it's less about your relationships, and it's more about are you going to be obedient to God? Y'all ain't excited about forgiveness, it's all good. It's just fine. Forgiveness is first. This is what forgiveness is about. It's first about letting go of the bitterness in your heart. Number, let me just say this, this is parenthetical, but forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Some of us are like, well, well, does that mean that I have to trust that person again and be around that person again? Absolutely not. If they wronged you, if they've hurt you, if they haven't apologized, it doesn't mean that you need to reconcile to, to build a relationship together. But what it does mean is that you've got to release them from the bondage of the offense that they've committed against you because you've committed against God. I know some people have experienced some heinous things, some heart, some things that really, really hurt. Again, it doesn't mean that we won't pursue justice or that your perpetrator doesn't need to be confronted because they do. Because they've done you wrong, but at the same time, you cannot live your life with allowing them to have control over your emotions each time they see you. Think, think about what God did on the cross of Calvary for you. Just like God forgave us of our sins by absorbing our sin and breaking down the wall that was erected between us and him, we absorb the sin of our spouse in other relationships in order for us to have a renewed relationship. Jesus is like, I absorbed the pain so that you don't have to pay for it anymore. And so here, here, let me give you four, give me four steps to help you with forgiveness. This is what forgiveness looks like. Number one, I will not brood over this. I will not brood over this. I will not let my feelings marinate over and over. Here's number two. I will not bring this up and use it against you. Remember how we talked last week and how we get historical? We're like, you know, I'm going to sweep this under the rug. No, you're not sweeping this under the rug. You just want to use this as ammunition later. That's just another bullet in the clip, (laughs) right? Number three, I will not talk to others about this incident, right? And number four, I will not allow this incident to hinder our relationship. Now, do you get here overnight? Of course not. It is difficult. But this is the framework, according to Ken Sandy. This is the framework for forgiveness. Does that make sense? And so you have to remember that forgiveness is an act of the will. When you, feel you're, when you feel like you're brooding over your stuff, 
When you want to bring it up and, and use that as a tool against someone, when you want to tell others about this incident, not to process through your hurts and your harms and things like that, but as gossip, uh, when you do this, you are forgetting the extent that Jesus went to through, to save you and forgive you. As one expositor says, the cross is Jesus' ultimate sign of forgiveness because he's willing to forgive us for far more than we're willing to forgive others for. So that's the key to your relationship. Y'all good? All right. Well, you know, let me talk to my singles real quick. Hey, singles. Welcome to the cookout. Hey, hey. A few things y'all should know. Number one, I, I say this a lot, but you need to know, marriage is no better than singleness. You are not missing out on the best thing in life. The best thing in life is having Jesus because it, he is. He's the best thing in life. Having a church family, having people that love you, sex is great and it's fun and all those type of things, but that cannot be compared to the intimacy that you can have in a relationship with God. That's number one. Number two, uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7 that it's good to be single as I am. That's what he said. You like, he said it's good to be single. It is because uh, when you're ready to go, let's say you don't have kids, when you're ready to go, everybody's ready to go. Uh, when you spend money, it's your money. Well, perhaps it's Sally Mae's too. You, some of y'all are in a, a, a situation with Sally Mae right now. I'm praying. I'm praying for you. She's like, well, you know, Sally Mae and Chisup, you know, child support. Anyway, anyway, Chisup is getting us too. Anyway, anyway, probably shouldn't have said that. Anyway, singles, let me just tell you that being single is a beautiful thing. There is beauty in that. Because here's what it does, is it gives you the opportunity to work on your issues before you drag it into a marriage. In the words of Tony Evans, what is the point of meeting Mr. or Mrs. Right when you are Mr. and Mrs. Wrong? What's the point? This is a good time for you to go to therapy, hallelujah, or a psychiatrist, hallelujah. This is a, and this is a good time for you to get over the bitterness of your ex. Or the bitterness of how you grew up. Or the bitterness of that past relationship. This is your moment right here. It's not to say that you're going to have the most blissful time ever. But it does mean that you can cut some of the stuff that you drag into your marriage so that you can have a prosperous future. Does that make, does that make sense? And you're not doing that to prove yourself worthy of love. You're already worthy of love just by right of you being you. By right of you coming out the womb. In the image of God, with the breath of God in your lungs, you're worthy for love right there. You don't have to prove yourself worthy. But what I am saying is if you want an easier road in your relationship, it might be good to deal with some of these issues up front. Does that make sense, church? So let me jump back in. So he gets back in. Here's the second thing I want you to notice. Second thing. Here's the second law. Find something different to appreciate about your spouse. Find something different to appreciate about your spouse. Um... I've got an iPhone XR, and um, yeah, I know we, you know, I have an iPhone XR. It's, it's not the best thing in the world. The camera's not updated, right? And, and I get a lot of flack about that, but, but it's a good phone. It still works. It still texts, amen. It still uh, calls me to be on Instagram much more than I shouldn't be, right? So it's working fine. Uh, but one of the reasons that I don't upgrade my phone is because every so often, the manufacturer sends something called an upgrade, and so it sends new software, and that new software 
upgrades the phone so there's new and amazing things to explore about it. And so the same thing that applies to that myopic phone is the same thing that applies in your relationship with Jesus with your spouse. Is that if your spouse is connected to the eternal network called the Father, Son, and the Spirit, if they're walking with Jesus, what happens from time to time is he sends an upgrade. Some of us don't need an upgrade. What we really need is a jailbreak. Because a jailbreak breaks all of the old uh, hardware that was there so that you can experience and enjoy the new one. Some of us have some heartbreaks, some issues that need jailbreaking so that we can walk in the freedom that God has for us in the future. Are y'all hearing me today, church? And so what happens is when you get that update, that means that there's new and beautiful things to explore about your spouse. And so this man begins in verse 7, chapter 7. He begins in chapter 7, and he says, they're back in the bedroom, apparently. I won't, I won't read all of this, but some of this I think you need to see. In verse 7, he says, how beautiful are your sandal feet, my princess. So get this. Normally, he starts from the eyes and works his way down. Now, he's going to start at her beautiful feet, and he's going to work his way up. And the saddle feet are the first time that he mentions them in the Bible. Are y'all hearing me? I'm just going to read. I'm just going to read this because it's spicy. Somebody say it's spicy. Here we go. Here we go. Spicy, but it's right. I'm going to read this. We don't even have a slide for it. Let me just read it. How beautiful your sandal feet, princess. The curves of your thighs are like jewelry. Hallelujah. The handiwork of a master. Your navel, or some translations say inner thigh, is a rounded bowl. It never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a mound of wheat surrounded by lilies. So that's normally not a compliment when you tell your wife that her stomach is like a bag of wheat, right? But, but what he's saying is sometimes, you, you don't use that. Don't use that. Don't say that. Don't say that. Don't say that. Your belly is a mound of wheat surrounded by flowers. But I want you to think of Beyonce's maternity picture because what he's saying is, your belly is, feels like wheat because you're, um, that meaning I'm open to the possibility of us having children. That's what some theologians say, right? Okay. Ooh, ooh, wipe my head. Get this. All right. Here we go. We don't have this down. I'm just going to read it. Verse 3. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of gazelle. The reason he says that is because when you approach a fawn in the wilderness, you do it very carefully and gently. You just don't go in all rough. Maybe your wife will want a more aggressive touch later, but in the interim, you don't do that. Let me come on now. Your neck is as the tower of ivory. Your eyes are pools of Heshbon uh, by Beth Rabin. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon. Now, I probably wouldn't say that to your wife either. The tower of, I, w- I probably wouldn't say that. Uh, like, baby, your nose is so big, it's big as the Tower of Lebanon. That's probably, that's probably not life-giving to her. What, what, what he's saying, what, he's, what, what scholars say he's saying here is he's not saying that her nose is big. It means that she looks confidently down on all dangers. That's a good way to clear that up, right? He says, looking forward to, your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. The hair of the head is like purple cloth. And he keeps on going down. Verse 7, your stature is like a palm tree. Your your breasts are a cluster of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruits. 
may your breasts, may your breasts be like clusters of grapes and the fragrance of your breath like apricots, your mouth like fine wine. And all the people of God said, don't ever tell me, don't ever tell me the Bible is boring. And don't ever tell me that they didn't talk about some real issues throughout this text. Okay? Don't don't tell me. They talked about some real. It's not erotic, but it is suggestive. And so what he does, again, he starts with, there it is, sandaled feet, and he works his way up. And so one of the most beautiful things about your marriage is that you get to discover new things about your spouse and then bring it to their attention in order to encourage them. Some of us, like, like it doesn't take money sometimes. Sometimes we need to spend the currency of compliments. Baby, you are beautiful. You are wise. And it tells you, I see you, girl, reading that Bible. Ooh, 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 I see you. You know what I'm saying? Like, here's what I want you to know. Here's one of the things you can do is use your words of encouragement to heal their brokenness. You don't know how much insecurity internal and external, your spouse or your significant other deals with on a regular basis. They they may not express this to you, but they are haunted with the inadequacy and failure. They grapple with the shame of the past. And let me just tell you, you are in an extraordinary position to either add to those insecurities or combat them. Like, don't overlook the power of your your voice. Because your voice, other than God's voice, is the most influential in your spouse's life. Let me tell you something. When Sarah t- puts her hand on me and says, baby, you anointed, I'll be like, oh, yes. She'll be like, you can do this thing. I don't know if she believe it all the time, but she's telling me that. No, nah, I know she's, I'm just playing. But sometimes, sometimes I'm like, baby, you don't know how your words of encouragement water over the desert of my soul. You don't know how it's like rain coming down on a parched land. And the reason I appreciate it is because it makes my dry heart bubble up and bud with flowers of joy and satisfaction. Use your words to build them up. Not always identifying what they don't do right. And that's one of the issues is that we want to use our words as projectiles and weapons to harm people. I know that you fight at your work all the time. I know that you have difficulty with your boss and all of these people, but when you come into this house, know that this is peaceful land, not the war-torn territory that you just stepped out of. Your spouse is not your enemy. It's just trying to help you be better. Here's another thing. It's hard to use your words to heal your spouse when you're not a historian of their hurts. Say that again. It's hard for you to heal your spouse when you're not a historian of their hurts. You've got to be able to jump in to that, all right? Number three, you ready? Number three, log number three. Throw this in the fire. Don't forget the romance. Don't forget the romance. I played baseball in high school. I thought I was going to make the league. Uh, it was a shortstop, and I, I, listen, today I can still turn a double play. I just want you to know. I can still turn a double. If I was soft toss a ball right now, I could still get the ball out of there, right? I'm telling you, I felt it. I felt it in my soul. Yeah, I don't want to mess up my knee here. <laughs> Shut up. Shut up. Y'all so disrespectful. Let me have my moment. Let me have my moment. Let me have my moment. So I thought I was going to go to the league. Well, I wasn't good enough to go to the league, but I, that's how I felt. Amen? Like, in my, that was my truth, right? Since everybody has their own truth now, that was my truth. 
right? So one day I was pitching, I was pitching, this is before I hurt my arm. Um, I remember like I was stinking it up. I was throwing, I was walking batter after batter. And then my coach came out there, probably said something inappropriate. But the reason for his visit to me on the mound was because he saw me working really hard and he needed to help me break up the rhythm so I had a moment to rest. And so what happens in this, in this passage is much of the same thing. Verse, verse 11, she says, come with me, my love. Let's go to the field to spend the night. In other words, she's saying, let's, get, let's take a getaway together. Now, her getaway is a little different. I don't know about sleeping outside among the henna blossoms and all that. That's not, I'm more, like I told you before, an indoorsman, so that's not really my thing. But she's like, let's get away. And here's the thing. It does not cost much money to leave the house and go sit in the garden. Right? She's inviting him to a cheap getaway. She's like, yo, sometimes the best thing you can do to keep the fire of your marriage going is to do some really, really simple things. Right? Like, it doesn't matter. Like, like some of you are like, Pastor, I got kids. I got these babies. You know, I love them to death. Here's what you do. Put them to bed early. Put them to bed early. Put them to bed, put they behind the bed early. They're going to get up 732 times. Talking about it's dark. I didn't get enough to eat. Mommy, I'm still thirsty. All of that. You can tell I have no experience with that at all, right? Not me, right? Daddy, I'm hungry. Coming in, asking questions. Hey, Dad, um, what do you want to be when you grow up? I am grown up. I'm grown up already. Go to bed. Hey, Dad, what are, um, what are your plans for tomorrow? Here's my favorite one. Hey, Dad, you know, tell, tell me about why you love Jesus so much. I'm like, because he first loved me. Go to bed now. Dad, you hadn't finished reading the Bible story. I read 752 of them, right? But once that process is over, turn on a movie, right? Get one of those charcuterie boards. What do they call them? What do they call Whatever. Whatever. Cheese and crackers. Cheese and crackers and the whiz. That never fills you up. Grapes. It's not even a real meal. But anyway, if you're into that. And while you're at it, get some of that nasty boba tea. And with the tapioca. That stuff to give you diabetes. Anyway, 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 let me preach the sermon. Let me preach the sermon. Anyway, get one of them charcuterie things. You know what I mean? With your cheese whiz and your olives and your feta cheese and all that type of stuff. And then put on some, put on some soft music, right? Put on some soft music and just snuggle up. Sometimes the best thing you can do to keep the fire of romance going is not spending a lot of, mo- of money, but just being intentional. It's just being intentional. It doesn't have to be financial all the time. And, so, and, and when you do that, like, like what I want to help us understand is sometimes it's just the little pleasures in life. When your wife looks at you with a glowing look, there's pleasure there. And when you get away to slow down, here's, what's hap- here's what happens. And I'm finished up on this one and the band can come. Here's what happens. Is you get to do a real assessment about how your relationship is going. You get to say, hey, baby, how, how are we doing? If you could grade me on my digital time or you could grade me on my personal time with Jesus, what would you say I need to get better in? What, what, what is the area in my life where I can be more affectionate to you. Why is that important? Because many of the marriages and relationships that I know fall apart because we're making too many withdrawals and not enough deposits. She don't want to have sex with you not because she don't, is not attracted to you, but because you're not affirming her enough. 
That was a strong yes. Anyway, that's what's happening. This is what's happening. Solomon knew this. And he's like, yo, babe, as time passes, I want you to know that I'm going to be disciplined. Because your marriage may have lost its fire. But it doesn't mean that it's time for it to expire. And if you are romantic, well, I'll tell you one of the most important things that I've learned in my marriage is to apologize. It's to apologize. Right? And God wants you to maintain your relationship. Like, he doesn't want you to, he doesn't want marriage to be a hurdle. He wants it to be something that is a blessing to your life and brings great joy. Because, listen, in spite of our sins, in spite of the things that we've done, you bring him great joy. He loves you. He loves you in spite of the things we've done wrong. And he's equipped you with meaning and purpose and value. He's validated you. He's loved you. He's considered you worthwhile. Don't you know that Jesus loved you so much that he was willing to bankrupt heaven for you? God gave his best sacrifice to save us from swimming in the sea of sin. He left his eternal abode. Do you know how comfortable Jesus was in heaven with the Father and the Spirit, just affirming each other, loving each other? But he saw and looked down and saw that we were in a chaotic situation. And in the words of Israel Holden, he didn't want heaven without us. So what he did was he left the comforts of heaven to come down into the chaos of earth. And he would live on this earth for decades much of the time in obscurity. And eventually when his public ministry started, he's just preaching about the kingdom of God and how you and I can all be a part of it. But in order for the kingdom to come to fruition, he had to go to the cross. Because in order for the kingdom of God to be expanded in all the world, he had to experience and drink and taste the cup or taste a bit of our sin from the past, present, and future. Do you know what extent God went to to save you and give you meaning and purpose and value? And now he rejoices over us with singing. When you recognize that, it changes your whole perspective on the gospel. And then three days later, after he was crucified, after he was mugged and beaten and, and done all those nasty things that happened to us, he resurrected again. His resurrection was a receipt that the payment for your sin and my sin was received by God the Father. And he cleared the debt that we have. So I just want you to know today, like, this book is about the love between a man and a woman, but it's really about the sacrificial love that Christ has for you and I. And don't you lose sight of that. So much so that he wants you to be a part of his family. I, I don't know where you're at today in your salvation and your walk with Jesus, but one of the next steps that you can take is for us to stop being the Lord of our life and recognizing that God needs to be the Lord of our life. Who's in control? Is it him or is it you? Because your way is eventually going to lead to destruction. But if you do it God's way, it leads to a life of purpose and meaning and value. Let me tell you something. You don't know purpose until God reveals it to you and gives you a beautiful spiritual gift that you can use in the context the local body of Christ. So I'm done, family. Why don't you bow your head and close your eyes? I'm just going to pray for the marriages in here. And if there's someone in here that doesn't know Jesus, that wants to walk with him and know him and be with him, I want to invite you to be a part of his family. Father, I just come to you right now.
Lord, there's a lot of us in this room struggling with forgiveness, struggling with bitterness. Lord, some of us have experienced hurts in the past, and we said, because we never want to experience this again, we will defend ourselves so we will never be a victim again. But that's caused us to not be transparent. That's caused us to push away every person that's loved us. So Jesus, I just come asking that you, as the mender of broken hearts, in the words of the old preacher, Lord, you're the mind regulator. Lord, would you fix and help heal the broken areas in our mind and our heart that don't look like you, God. Lord, I pray that we will value and love the gospel yet again, that it will be seen as beautiful, Lord, because you come and you transform hearts and minds. So I pray for these marriages. I pray for my singles in the building today that feel insecure because they don't have a marriage. Reaffirm them and and remind them that when they have you, Lord, you are sufficient. And you've given them community. You've given them uh, social intimacy. Lord, they have what they need. But I pray, Lord, for those who want to be married, I pray that you will open up a door. I pray that you will bless them with a spouse that will love them, that will have already gone through therapy. Hallelujah, somebody. I pray that you will bless them with someone that is going to be a great father or a great mother to their kids, someone that they haven't even met right now that's praying for them. I pray that right now in the name of Jesus pray that you will bless them. Some of them feel lonely right now. Some of them feel really distant. Father, I pray that you will bless them with companionship today. To be seen and be loved by someone. But Jesus, may that person not become their idol. Somebody that they worship and cherish more than you. Because Lord, ultimately we can get all the things that we desire. But if we don't look to you as the ultimate source of our satisfaction and joy, we will falter. So Jesus, we just invite you to heal the broken areas that we're today. And while your eyes are closed and while your head is bowed, if there's anybody in the building today, your eternal destiny isn't settled. We want to help you settle that today with a commitment to Jesus. If that's you, why don't you just lift your hand in the air? I promise you, we're not going to embarrass you. We just want to welcome you into the family. If that's you today, is there one? the old preacher would say. Is there one? So Jesus, we thank you so much for your love and kindness, your generosity and your graciousness to us. Lord, we love you. We honor you in Jesus' name. Everyone that agree with that, say